Welcome, this is Stephen Lee, and this is Life and the Living of It. This episode is going to be a little longer than others. In it, I'm going to be talking about my journey to get a new heart from an old damaged one, and some of the harrowing pitfalls that occurred. This is My Heart Odyssey. I had bone cancer as a teen, between 16 and 18 years of age. I had radical chemotherapy for Ewing sarcoma. One drug that I was taking was at lethal levels, and the doctors had to personally sign out the amount and hang the IV bag in my hospital room. That drug happened to be adriamycin. The drug was known to be cardiotoxic back then, and indeed later on it was very toxic. Damage they thought would be done after the 12th dose, but indeed damage started on dose 1. Fast forward about 12 years, and I started putting on weight. I felt more tired. I developed diabetes. I thought I was just eating badly and not taking care of myself. And while I'm sure that was part of it, in the background my heart had started failing and decompensating. I lost the job I had due to absenteeism. I found myself so tired and it seemed like I caught everything that was going around. It just seemed my weight went up and up and the energy went down and down. And then problems with my liver developed, my blood sugar control got worse. And one night I got up and it felt like I could not breathe. I wasn't getting enough oxygen and I knew something serious was wrong. The next day I went to a respiratory specialist and after some tests he said I should see a cardiologist immediately. When I saw a cardiologist he said that I had severe congestive heart failure and had probably already had several heart attacks. Yes, his bedside manner was unmannerous. Well, you can imagine the sheer emotional impact of such a statement. I was still in shock by the time they wheeled me next door to the hospital, and they started trying to get the fluids off, the breathing better, the heart stabilized, and in 13 days I lost 34 pounds of water. Finally, after two weeks, they got all the balances correct and the proper meds for home, and I started on this odyssey of life and death living. Now let me say something about life and death living. It's difficult. It's limiting. It's sometimes depressing. It's sometimes infuriating. But most of all, it's lonely. During this time, I had to switch from being the hermit that was so easy to do to getting out with people regardless of how I felt. I had to have connections. I had to have community. The lingering death in my old heart forced me to find things of life and living. And people and connections and friendships and communities were those things of life. But what made this so difficult is not only the exhaustion that heart failure brings, but I was way out in the country, and the nearest town of any size was at least 22 miles away. Even so, I managed to find a church and friends and support. I've heard of other people with heart failure doing this alone, and I can't even imagine that. From 2004 to 2010, they managed simply through medications to keep my heart out of the transplant zone. While this was good news, my life became more limited over time. The activities for which I took for granted were being systematically curtailed. For example, I was in the church choir and I had to give it up because I couldn't sing properly anymore. I could not take a deep enough of a breath nor sustain it long enough to sing. I had to give up going to youth activities with the youth at the church. Now emotionally, any chronic illness is limiting. It takes enormous effort to change my thoughts so that I don't get locked into depressive ways of thinking. 
I know that it took multiple family interventions, a knock on the head by a dear friend of mine, to finally get me started changing my thoughts and getting out of depression. That's the funny thing about heart failure. The heart represents the powerhouse of the body, but it also represents the powerhouse in the center and the clearinghouse of emotions. When the physical organ starts failing, the emotions sometimes go haywire as well. Depression is the number one emotional complaint and condition of those with heart issues. Now there are hoops, and I can tell you lots of hoops, when you're finally listed for transplant. In 2010, I had become bad enough that I was told I would need a transplant. That day was the biggest shock. I excused myself from the cardiologist's office. I went into the bathroom, and I didn't cry. I was in emotional denial. I remember my hand shaking. I remember looking in the mirror and seeing if I could see the death that should have been written there. I think I also almost hyperventilated. I had to have a heart to survive, to live any, to live any meaningful length of time. Someone else's flesh had to be given to me. Someone else had to die so I could live. And even today, I still have trouble wrapping my heart and my mind around that one. When you are ready to get on the list of transplants, lots of things happen. You have a plethora of tests. And plethora is not enough of a word. Months worth of tests. And failure in any one of them could delay or even invalidate transplant as an option. Talk about high stress. I managed to clear all those tests, and then came other doctors. You have to have a dentist visit. It sounds petty, but if you have any kind of periodontal disease or infection or other conditions, they have to be addressed and cured before getting on the transplant list. Also gone are those yearly visits, as now you have to go every six months. You have to see an optometrist. No, no, I'm not making this up. They need to check your retinas, glaucoma, pressures, again, every six months. You must see a dermatologist. They have to make sure nothing is cancerous or precancerous or rule out any other kind of infectious or serious skin condition. And again, you have to see them once every six months. It's an enormous process to go through. And then you must pass the psychological test with the psychologist on staff. They have to be reassured you're going to take your meds, you take this seriously, and they're not going to waste a heart on you. Now that one was nerve-wracking. I tend to be very honest and very open, but I also tend to put my mouth in my foot or something like that. Since I had been clinically depressed before, I was afraid that the cardiologist would say I was emotionally unable to commit to a transplant, but I did pass. Thank God. Now, what does it mean to be on the transplant list? Well, I was on it for almost three years. My condition sometimes improved and sometimes got worse. During one of those worse times, I was told about the LVAD, Left Ventricular Assist Device. An LVAD was a mechanical pump that takes over the functions of the left ventricle. It is implanted directly in the chest cavity, and it is a complex operation with several possible complications, not only in recovery, but in surviving day-to-day -day with it. And yet something in my gut could not get over the idea of having one. The statistics were there. At the time, there was a 72% chance of surviving the first year. Both the surgeon and my cardiologist at the time thought it was the wisest move I could make, and yet my whole body rebelled. Then my cardiac index got a little bit higher, and the discussion about the LVAD went away. Though I was out of the red zone, I was still taking a chance at my own life by not pursuing the LVAD. 
My heart continued to slowly, ever so slowly, get worse. Six months from that time, I was told once again about the Elvad, and again the gut-wrenching feeling I could not overcome. Finally, I asked if there were any other options, and I was told about the option for IV inotropes. IV inotropes is like dripping liquid adrenaline into the heart. It forces the heart to pump harder and to be more effective, but it also burns out the heart faster. At the time, statistics were 41% over three years, which is far worse than the LVAD. But when thinking of a PIC line and a 24-7 IV pump, my body didn't rebel. Now, this was a bridge to transplant, which meant that things could still happen, the heart could still decompensate, and I could still die waiting for another heart. But I went for it. Now, to do this, you go into the ICU and you're connected to all kinds of machines for the titration of an inotrope. They need to know your cardiac numbers like wedge pressure and atrial pressures and ventricle pressures and venous pressures and arterial pressures. And they do this by feeding a wire with all these sensors into your heart and leaving it there for several days. And then they play with the different amounts of drugs. It's uncomfortable. This huge collection of wires and tubes and stuff coming out of my neck was extremely restricting. I actually hated it. Though after three days, I was out of the ICU and they took the sensors out and I felt free. The inotropes almost doubled my cardiac output. I was pumping twice the blood that I was before, so in the sense, it was a success. Though I knew that for some, the body would adjust too quickly and the inotropes would become ineffective sooner or later. I also knew I was on borrowed time. So I prayed, I really prayed, that a heart would show up before that happened. I went home with a portable pump, bags of IVs, and instructions, and weekly nursing visits to my home to change out the drugs, dress the line, and address any concerns I might have. I hunkered down for the long haul. The one real advantage to doing inotropic therapy is that it pushes you up the list for a transplant. And in three and a half weeks, the call came. A new heart was waiting. The call. At first, I didn't recognize the voice on the phone. I get calls from Seton Heart Specialty Care Center all the time. When I first got listed, my heart would thump every time that they called. But by the 12th, Mr. Lee, you need to schedule another blood test kind of call. I kind of didn't get excited anymore. Yet I always recognized who was calling. This time, I didn't recognize the voice. Mr. Lee, Mr. Stephen Daniel Lee. Is this Mr. Lee with whom I am talking? And then my heart started thumping. This was it. This was official. Mr. Lee, we have procured a new heart for you. That's really what I remember the most vividly, this voice. Mr. Lee, we have procured a new heart for you. And I think I said something like, um, but the voice continued on. We have a candidate heart lined up for you. You need to be at Seton Hospital in the next two hours. And let me tell you, this is when I started panicking. We were way out in the country with absolutely no traffic. It took at least an hour and 40 minutes to get to downtown Austin. And this guy was giving me two hours? Now, my mom and I had already prepared a grab bag for hospital stays. But you know that no matter how much you prepare, you miss something. It also seemed to take forever to get ready to go. We hit the road late. There was so much traffic. Closing in on the two-hour window, we were still 45 minutes away from the hospital. And I called in thinking, praying, hoping, but fearing 
that they would say, well, we're sorry, Mr. Lee, but we had to give the heart away to somebody else who is here on time. That's really what I was afraid of. And one of the nurses that I did recognize says, well, Mr. Lee, get here as soon as you can. So my mom is usually kind of a safe driver, but I was going, mom, go. It's a yellow. Run the yellow, run the yellow, run the yellow. We arrived late. And the first words out of my mouth were, is the heart still available? And it was. We arrived around 8.30 p.m., but the weather was delaying the chopper that was bringing it in. And at that point, they were about an hour and a half behind, too. The only good thing that came from this rush in this stressful time, I had time to take a shower and shave before the heart got there. Then they wheeled me back into the prep room, and my nerves started up again. During that time, it almost was as if the old heart knew its time was near an end. I had been in atrial fibrillation for years, but it felt like the old heart was quivering even more. Then they rolled me into surgery, and they had four people there for prepping me. And as the minutes went by, more machinery was wheeled in, and more machinery, and more specialists, and more medical personnel. And suddenly this 20-foot by 18-foot room was filled I asked the surgeon that was doing this, how many successful operations had he done? He's like, oh, I've done well more than 50. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, right, he can say that. I was worried to the core. And then the mask went on and the lights went out. And we will continue this in the next podcast from the time that I woke up and an entire new set of complications developed. Until then, this is life and the living of it.